0: Good morning and welcome to the Particular Baptist podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you would like to support our ministry, head on over to patreon.com forward slash a particular Baptist and you can subscribe to one of the tiers or you can do a custom giving amount um, and we greatly appreciate that. And thank you for those who are already uh, patrons. All right. So back in the saddle today, we are going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. Um, definitely a controversial topic in church history, especially during the Reformed era um, where you had different. You had the Lutheran view, you had the Zwinglian view, and you had the Reform view, the Roman Catholic view. Um, definitely not a monolithic understanding of the Lord's Supper. So we hope to be able to present a biblical argument for the Lord's Supper uh, based on our confession of faith, the 1689 uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith, and hopefully we can bring some clarity to this. But this is just a very high overview of um, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper and some different views of the Lord's Supper and interacting with those particular views. Um, so we'll start with Scripture, uh, Matthew twenty six, twenty six through twenty eight. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his to the disciples, and said, <clears throat> "Take, eat. This is my body." Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, "Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins." So we can see, um, I think Luke and Mark have similar. Um, and John have similar stories surrounding the Lord's Supper. Um, but this is probably what you will find in First Corinthians 11, because we see Paul quoting uh, one of the Gospels there, um, or at least paraphrasing it, and giving reiterating the establishment of the Lord's Supper. But we see Christ establishing this ordinance, um, and this is an ordinance that He requires of His disciples. It's not optional. It's not something that they can Uh, do when they please. It's something that they have to do on a regular basis. It's a command. There's an imperative of do this in remembrance um, of me. Um, So it's to be done regularly, and it is an act of corporate worship. Um, This isn't something that's done um, isolated from the local church. We see even from its inception, uh, Christ doing it with his disciples as a group, so we see this corporate aspect of it, and it is an act of worship. It's remembering who Christ is and participating in His, his blood and His body. Um, if we look at our Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 30, paragraph 7, uh, chapter 30 deals with specifically in the Lord's Supper. There's a chapter previous to that or prior to that that talks about baptism and the Lord's Supper, but then there's the chapter specifically in the Lord's Supper, and that's chapter 30. Paragraph seven, it's a fairly lengthy chapter, but paragraph seven says worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses, so this is talking about the nature of the elements themselves. Uh, we don't believe that the elements, the the bread and the wine, or the bread and the juice, however you know you participate in it, the fruit of the vine, um, those do not are not actually the body and blood of Jesus Christ in their substance. We don't believe that. They transform into the body and blood of christ nor do we believe that the body and blood of christ are with the elements as we'll see the lutherans teaching we believe that we're receiving these things um spiritually speaking so we do believe that when jesus said this is my body that he wasn't uh speaking hyperbole or that he wasn't um you know speaking metaphorically he was he meant what he said. He was saying, this is my body, but we have to figure out what sense did he mean, this is my body. Um, We do not believe that it was a physical, uh, that there's anything physical of Christ's body there. Jesus is sitting at the right-hand side of the Father. He rose with a physical body, a corporeal body, and he uh, went to his Father and ascended in a glorified corporeal body. So Since Jesus was fully man, his body cannot be everywhere at the same time. Man is not omnipresent. If we believe in the incarnation, Jesus is fully man. He's only in one place. That's with his father, uh, corporally speaking. And so understanding this Christology is important for us to understand the nature of the elements. If we have a proper Christology, then we can use that to interpret what it means that uh, Jesus is saying that this is my body. Okay, and so really it's a process of elimination as we're going through this and looking at a biblical Christology. Um, So the only other option that we have, because we do believe that we are, it's not figuratively, it's not metaphorically, it's not hyperbole. This is Jesus is making a definitive statement here. Um, The only other way we can read that is spiritually. So our confession is very clear and actually repeats itself in this paragraph saying that this is, um, you know, we're spiritually receiving really and indeed the body and blood of Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking, um, while the elements are remaining exactly the same. The elements are remaining the body and blood or, or remaining bread and wine. They're not changing in any way. We are really eating bread and wine, but we are spiritually by faith receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We're participating in that sense. Um, so that's what our confession is is trying to be very careful about in not, uh, in not uh, treating the elements as if they are the real body and blood of Jesus Christ. And this is in reaction to the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, which we'll get to in a moment. But it's important to understand that uh, there is this spiritual receiving of the body and blood of Christ, this real participation in the body and blood of Jesus uh, Christ. Now, we don't believe that Christ is sacrificed again. We don't believe there's any kind of um, atonement being made again and again, again, as the Eucharist in the Roman Catholic tradition would hold to Christ has already died once for all as the scriptures say. Um, but again, the the body and blood of Jesus Christ, we are participating in, in that remembrance, spiritually speaking by faith. And that's what our confession is, is trying to communicate. Um, the Lord's supper is also a means of grace um, this does not mean that we are saved by uh, participating uh, in this. Uh, we don't believe it is sa- we are saved by participating in uh, the Lord's Supper. We believe that it is a remembrance and it is a means of grace and that we are imparted grace as Christians. It's nourishing to our souls. It reminds us of the gospel. It helps us to, um, to honor and obey our Lord and grow in our thankfulness for him. Um, we are really, as First Corinthians eleven twenty six says, proclaiming the Lord's death until uh, he comes. So it's a gospel declaration that's being done here. So we're remembering what Christ did, and that imparts grace to us and it helps us turn away from sin. We remember the gospel. It helps us to turn away from our wickedness and evil and helps us uh, be renewed in our strength.
1: Cool. Um, and just as a note, I, I shut my video off here because it's coming in choppy on my end, although everybody seems to say that it's coming through fine, so it might just be an issue with me. Um. All right. So I wanted to talk about uh, two things. One, is is the Lord's Supper a mere memorial? Because frequently um, we're, we're accused of believing it's a mere memorial, but also there are people that do um, Uh, that are out there that believe that it is just a mere memorial. There's nothing more spiritually significant going on in the Lord's supper than that. And I just wanted to, uh, in regards to that, read, um, first Corinthians 10 starting at verse 14, wherefore my dearly beloved free from flee from idolatry, speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say, the cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh, are they are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then that the idol is anything or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils, not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So uh, a couple interesting things about uh, this passage. This is uh, in the context of talking of the discussion about um, whether or not it's it's right to eat meat sacrificed to, uh, to idols which is why you have the discussion of both the Lord's supper and the discussion of talking about idols there. But Paul says that he, he asks a rhetorical question, is it not a, a communion of the blood of Christ? Is it not a communion of the body of Christ? So there's something more significant going on than just a, a mere memorial. And then he compares it, he contrasts it with what's going on with um, with sacrifices to idols. Now, sacrificing to idols it's not that the pagans thought whatever they were doing was just a mere memorial they thought there was something more significant going on and in some sense there is it's just a demonic significance um so seeing that parallel we should at least in some respect see that that's sort of what's going on with uh with the lord's lord's supper that's not to say that the lord's supper isn't a memorial um jesus says to do this in remembrance of me so it is A memorial is just a little bit more than more than that. Um, Did you have any uh, points about that, Dan?
0: Um, I think it's good that you pointed out that it's not a mere memorial, because I think that the Lutherans will point to us and and uh, say that our position is a mere memorial because they're saying that it's actually something more than that, in that the body and blood of Christ are with the elements in in some sense, uh, more than just. You know a spiritual reception of them um so i think it's there's a common accusation that the reformed hold to uh just a bare memorial and we and like sean said we don't believe that we are really participating in the body and blood of jesus christ we are really participating in receiving his body and blood um just in a spiritual sense so it's not merely remembering it's uh actually proclaiming the gospel. It's uh, receiving, like I said, it's a means of grace. So we are uh, being nourished by it. We're being rejuvenated by it. We're being fed by it, spiritually speaking. Um, So it's not just merely remembering what Christ did, um, although that is, you know, a huge thrust of it, but there's much more. It, It is a means of grace to us.
1: Mm hmm. And part of part of the reason why that uh, this accusation is leveled against the reformed is that Zwingli, um, who's a very early uh, reformer, um, uh, not founder of the Reformed Church necessarily, but definitely early influential uh, uh, figure there, um, he definitely had more of a memorialist view in yeah, his disputation with with mm-hmm. Luther. Um, from what I understand, and I haven't looked into his writing specifically, he's not completely memorialist, but definitely way more on that side. Um, so I understand where that comes from. But when you read someone like Calvin, that's obviously not, and we'll, we'll quote from Calvin later, that's obviously not um, what the, the standard reform view is. Um, so moving on, because this, this is a question that does seem to frequently come up um should it be celebrated weekly and that's something that um gets at what what your view of it is uh because if the supper is a means of grace you're going to want to do it more regularly than if you think it is a memorial now obviously Mm -hmm. some people um having the memorial view might still want to do it weekly because they recognize um, it's significance. so well maybe i shouldn't maybe i shouldn't make that uh uh, such a strong statement there, but at the, at the very least, how you think about the supper translates into what you think you're, you're um, it it does impact what, uh, how often you think it should be held. Mm-hmm. Um, so just as a, a little bit of a, uh, a proof text um, that we should be celebrating it weekly, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verses 17 through 22. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together not for the better, but for the worst. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and partly I believe it, for there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in Mm. eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, have ye not houses... To eat and drink in or despise ye the church of god and shame them that have not what shall i say to you shall i praise you in this i praise you not so here paul is talking about that when they're coming together there are issues right there are divisions among them and um says when ye come together therefore in one place this is not to eat the lord's supper so this is implying that when they've come together as the church that they're they're eating the lord's supper um Paul uses this language uh, similarly in other spots of of gathering together. It's not the exact same uh, Greek word. I think one was sunerkomai and one was sunago, but they're they're related concepts of coming together or gathering gathering together. But um, same, same epistle, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 through 5, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And if you're familiar with first Corinthians five, that's the the passage where Paul is talking about the person who has his father's wife and he needs to be church disciplined. He needs to be put out of the church. So when he says, and when you're gathered together, that would be a gathering of the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you have, First Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 2, which should be very important for a Reformed person um, in terms of the Sabbath. Uh, now, concerning the collection of the saints, as I have given order in the churches of Galatia, even so do ye, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Um, so here, this is one of the proof texts. We would say, is for the gathering of the church on the Lord's Day, on the Sunday, because it says mm-hmm. the first day of the week. And he's saying here that um uh you're going to gather this day so that there be no gatherings when I when I come. Well, why is that? Because they're already meeting meeting weekly on the uh on the Lord's Day. That's why they would gather uh with the supplies they need to send to the churches in Jerusalem on that day. Um so we see here that talking about gathering, it's in the the context of the church in the context of coming on the Lord's day. So, uh, in first Corinthians 11, when he's talking about when you come together as a church, when you, when you, um, come together in one place is to eat the, uh, to eat the Lord's supper. It is not to eat the Lord's supper is what he's saying there. Um, we see that this is associated with the gathering of the church. Um, and it seems to be, what we would, uh, it doesn't seem to indicate like, oh, it's sometimes and not others. It just seems to be regularly part of the gathering of the church. So that's the way uh, I would see that doctrine biblically.
0: Yeah. And it's, I think, I mean, you look historically, and Jim Ranahan talks about this in his book, Edification of Beauty. Uh, even historically, among particular Baptists, there were differences in how frequently the supper was observed. It wasn't monolithic even back then. Um, But I, I do think to your point earlier, it does go back to understanding, is this a means of grace or not? If it is a means of grace, then the natural conclusion of that should be, okay, I want to participate in this on a weekly basis as much as we can. And because it is an institution of religious worship that would fall under corporate uh, the corporate gathering of of God's people, religious worship in a corporate sense, I should say. So why would we want to deprive our people of that if indeed this is a means of grace where God uses it to nourish and encourage and to uh, bring about repentance in his people? We know Paul says that you have to prepare your heart ahead of time, right? You prepare your heart, you prepare your mind, you forsake sin before coming to the table. Um, and people need to make sure that they're not uh, improperly discerning the body and blood of Christ. So there is this repentive aspect to it that it drives us to the cross. It drives us to Christ. So um, I think when people withhold that from uh, their churches, I think it does a disservice to their churches. Um, and that's not to be harsh with brethren who have a conviction that, um, you know, they should do it once a month. I just don't think those are biblically grounded arguments. Um, and I, I think it is Problematic because our confession, and I think historically, you can see that uh, this has been seen as a means of grace, uh, even if they didn't all necessarily hold to the conclusions of that consistently. Um, but I, I think we have to be mindful of that. Um, I, you know, I've I've grown up hearing the arguments that we do it once a month because it could become uh, less special if we do it weekly. Um, well, you could use that argument about any of the uh, any of the elements of religious worship that we do on the Lord's day, preaching, singing, uh, fellowshipping. I mean, are we going to put those out to once a month just because, uh, you know, we might grow bored of preaching. No, that, that if you apply that to other means of grace, it doesn't work. It falls apart pretty quickly. And it's not a biblical argument. It's an argument of tradition. Um, so I think we have to be careful, you know, that we're not imposing our traditions upon the text and and look at the New Testament church's model and understanding what the Lord's Supper is. It's a means of grace. It's a way God spiritually nourishes his people. We remember, uh, we remember Christ and we see the pattern of the early church doing this on the first day of the week. And I think your first Corinthians 11 is probably uh, the best place to see that, you know, he's, Seeing when they come together, verse eighteen. First of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. That's clearly the first day of the week. This is the regular practice of the church, and then Paul dives right into the discussion of the Lord's supper. Um, so he seems to be tying, he is tying these two things together. They're coming together as a church. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, it's not to eat the Lord's supper, and this is right after he's laid, you know, laid out some of the criticisms about. Um, things that they were doing meaning on the lord's day um so i i think that's very clear that biblically speaking that we see this pattern of regular practice when they're meeting together they're uh, participating in the supper and that's the context that paul is giving these commands in about how the lord's supper is to be conducted um so i think from a regular to principle perspective uh, we don't have any other choice but to practice it weekly um or we I don't think we're being biblical in that regard. All right. Anything else to add, Sean?
1: Um, I had a thought, but it's it's gone now. So, okay. <laughs> I think we can I think we can move on.
0: All right. All right. So that's talking about more of, you know, our position and uh, I think the confessional position, biblical position of the supper at a very high level. We're not getting into all the details, but we wanted to talk about um, also some of the various views of the supper. We've alluded to some of them already, Um, but two of the the main views of the supper, we've talked about Zwingliism a little bit, um, but what are the two other major views are the Lutheran view of consubstantiation and the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. You you can kind of hear um the the elements of what these things are in the words themselves Consubstantiation: con mean with substantion talking about substance so with the substance right that gives an indication of what's being talked about here transubstantiation it's trans means to go across or above and beyond or or to go from one place to another right transatlantic going across the atlantic right from one side to the other so in this case, it would be the the body, the elements, the substance of the elements transforming from uh, the substance of bread and wine to the substance of the body and bo- blood of Christ. So you can see that those words reflect what's being talked about here. But the Lutheran view is what we'll talk about first briefly. Consubstantiation. You can see elements of this in the Augsburg Confession, which is the confession of the Lutheran Church, at least the Orthodox Lutherans, Um, You know, there's sectarianism within the the Lutheran church, just like there pretty much is in any major denomination. Um, I don't know if the liberal Lutherans would hold to uh, the Augsburg, but at least confessional Orthodox Lutherans hold to the Augsburg Confession, um, which is similar to our confession and came pretty, maybe about 100 years beforehand, maybe more, I think probably more than that. Um, But you do see some of these elements here. But Article 10 of the Oxford Confession, uh, of the Supper of the Lord, they teach that the body and blood of Christ are truly present and are distributed to those who eat the Supper of the Lord, and they reject those that teach otherwise. It says they teach the body and blood of Christ are truly present and are distributed to those who eat the Supper of the Lord. So you can see there's no qualification here in the Oxford Confession about what uh The elements are. It just says that it is the real body and blood of Christ. Uh, If we look at Luther's shorter catechism, which is in the same collection of works, so the Lutherans have this collection called the Book of Concord, which includes the Augsburg Confession, Luther's larger and shorter catechism, and some other things as well. But Luther, in his shorter catechism, uh, says this What is the sacrament of the altar? Answer It is the true body, the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine for us Christians to eat and to drink, instituted by Christ himself. So the, the the language here is key. Luther says it's the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, without qualification, the only qualification being that it is the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. But he uses interesting language here. He said it, it is under the bread and wine. Uh, that's important because, as we'll see, with, again, the Roman Catholic view teaches an actual transformation of the elements and the substance. Um, the Lutherans do not believe that; they believe it is with and under the bread and wine, um, and from that they gather that you are actually participating in the body and blood of Christ, the true body and blood of Christ, um, without those things actually being the body and blood of Christ. Um, so it gets it gets kind of confusing. Um, as you go through it, but there is more reasoning for this. Um, it goes back to a, a, a understanding of Christology as well. Again, we talked about earlier that a biblical Christology is a foundation of this, and everything else flows from it as it relates to the Lord's Supper. How you understand Lord's Supper flows from how you understand the incarnation and your Christology. So that's very important, and you'll see um, later on. Uh, There is a a Lutheran commentator, Schmid, um, who talks about kind of what the Lutheran view is and how that plays into their Christology. So in other words, the the Lutherans believe that Jesus Christ, upon his resurrection, his physical body really became a spiritual body. Um, They call it hyperphysical. Okay, it's not merely it's not corporeal. It's it's spiritual like the angel's. Um, and, and they talk about these different modes of Schmidt talks about these different modes of presence. What does it mean to be present in this sense? What do I mean present in this sense? And the conclusion he comes to as it relates to Christ is that uh, Christ's body um, is like that of the angels. Because angel, angels don't take up space. They're beings that exist, but they don't take up space, he says, because they're spiritual beings. And then he says that we will be like that in the life to come. And then he says this is what Christ did when he walked through the sepulcher and uh, and things like that, even though the, the stone was rolled away. But he doesn't discuss that uh, from what I remember. Um, I talk about this in an article that I wrote for a blog called The Incarnation and the Lord's Supper. I, I critique Schmid's understanding of Christology and, and the Supper and things like that. Um, but there is this shift in Christology that Lutherans have to make in order for their view to work. Um, Because Christ, obviously, if if his actual body and his actual blood are with the elements, it takes up space. Right. Uh, They don't believe that they don't believe it takes up space Um, and they can. They believe that his body and his blood can be everywhere at the same time because it's spiritual. It's hyperphysical. It's not um, it's not corporeal. If it was corporeal, then it would take up space. And it couldn't be omnipresent. So they have to spiritualize the body and blood of Jesus Christ in order for it to fit with their understanding of the supper. So it compromises a biblical Christology um, and creates this very weird understanding of uh, of the Lord's Supper. Um, anything you want to add to that, Sean?
1: Um, I guess just that you are playing around with the form of Eutychianism there. Now, oh, I... Yeah. At the very least, this is post-resurrection that this happens. So it's yes. not that I would accuse Lutherans of being Eutychian in their uh, theology prior prior to Christ's death. Correct. Um, but it is, you are starting to merge the attributes of the divine into the human nature, which is, which is problematic there.
0: Yeah, it gets um, messy because Schmid will actually, and again, in that article that I mentioned, I quote him. Um, he actually explicitly... Uh, says that you know Christ's body in his his physical body is omnipresent. Um, and actually let me just pull it up here. I'll read it. I think this is important that we uh, we see this here. Uh, give me one second. Um, yeah, because this is where probably the biggest difference between us and our Lutheran, uh, our Lutheran brethren, is, um, and we have to be, you know, we we love our Orthodox Lutheran brother, but this is a major contention point, and it was for Luther too, you know, like Sean mentioned, the discussion with Lutherans Wingley, they had a huge divide and division over this. Um, this was a huge, and I think part of that was probably because of the trying to work out the implications of the Roman Catholic Church, and Luther's coming out of that environment, um, and trying to work through all these things and and I think that created some problems. Um, but Schmidt says that this is from the doctrinal theology of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, page 579. He says, quote, the replete of presence is omnipresence, which belongs to God alone per se and essentially, and to the human nature of Christ by virtue of its union with the divine and personally. So he explicitly is tying omnipresence to God's nature and to uh, the human nature of Jesus Christ by virtue of the union of the person and the in the human nature which as Sean yeah. says it starts to mix the natures at that point and you have Eutychianism, uh the spiritualization of the of the physical body of Christ all right anything else to add to that Sean
1: no I think I'm uh good on that point um, okay I'm going talk into... about Rome's view yeah moving to talking about rome's view um so this is i'll quote from the roman catholic catechism here on transubstantiation and this is paragraph 14 13 by the consecration by the consecration the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of christ is brought about under the consecrated species of bread and wine christ himself living and glorious is present in a true real and substantial manner his body and his blood with his soul and his divinity and then they cite the council of trent there which essentially <laughs> says the same the same thing so the the body and blood or sorry the um the bread and wine has been changed into the body and blood of christ and not merely that not merely his his physical flesh and uh, blood but additionally along with that comes his soul and divinity So that is why Roman Catholics, you'll see them bowing before the Mm -hmm. the elements there, because for them, it is truly Christ physically present along with his divinity. Um, That's that's an aspect of their theology. So it is in in Mm -hmm. their minds, it's perfectly appropriate to uh, to do that. Um, So just to uh, to bring up some some verses here that deal with the fact that We shouldn't think about this as a physical transformation here. Um, I'll be uh, looking at Matthew, or actually, um, I guess that's uh, Mark there. I apologize. Uh, Mark 14, verses uh, 22 through 25. And this is the Last Supper. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and break it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, this is my blood of the new testament which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So he says, this is this is my body, this is my blood, and then immediately follows it with I will no more drink of the fruit of the vine. Um so what's he saying there? He's saying I'll no more drink wine and it's not just any, it's not just the generic term for wine. It's saying the fruit of the vine, like what what makes wine wine. I'm not going to drink this, showing that it's not it's not a physical transformation. It's still it's still the fruit of the vine. It's perfectly appropriate to call it the fruit of the vine. Um, and I know uh, that there's a, a little bit of um, an issue with the order of when he says that. For example, in Luke 22, uh, this is verses 17 through 20. Um, uh, so the, uh, Luke records the, uh, the events as this, and as they did eat, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this isn't my body. And he took, uh, the cup, oh no, wait, am I, I apologize. I'm rereading the same, uh, part from Mark. Uh, sorry. Um, uh, this is Luke and he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves for I say unto you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come and he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it unto them saying this is my body which is given for you this do in remembrance of me likewise also the cup after supper saying the cup is the new testament in my blood which is shed for you so one has the statement about the fruit of the vine coming before and one has it coming after the way I think is probably the best way to reconcile these two is that he may have said it twice um and one is recording uh the first time and one is recording the second time That seems probably to me to be the best way to reconcile these two. But regardless, um, he's he's calling it both times fruit of the vine, that this Mm -hmm. is something that, you know, comes from plants. It's not his physical flesh. Um, That's how it's being referenced. So we shouldn't um, we shouldn't think of this as a uh, as a, a physical transformation It's not physically his his body and blood but there is a, there is definitely a sense from which we are partaking of him spiritually. Um, and I wanted to uh, jump in a little bit into to Calvin's view on that. And I'm going to quote from a uh, uh, Keith Matheson article on Ligonier. Um, I think it was entitled Calvin's Doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Um, and uh, he says, Calvin repeatedly stated that his argument with Roman Catholics and with Luther was not over the fact of Christ's presence, but only over the mode of that presence. According to Calvin, Christ's human body is locally present in heaven, but it does not have to descend in order for believers to truly partake of it because the Holy Spirit affects communion. The Holy Spirit is the bond of it because the, um, oh, sorry. The Holy Spirit is the bond of the believer's union with Christ. Therefore, that which the minister does on the earthly plane, the Holy Spirit accomplishes on the spiritual plane. In other words, Those who partake of the bread and wine in faith are also, by the power of the Holy Spirit, being nourished by the body and blood of Christ. Um, And then just to to quote from Calvin himself here, this is from the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Volume 3. For as we have not the least doubt that Christ's body is finite according to the invariable condition of a human body, and it is contained in heaven where it is once received, till it shall return to judgment. So we esteem it utterly unlawful to bring it back under these corruptible elements or to imagine it is present everywhere. Nor is there any need of this in order uh, to our enjoying the participation of it. Since the Lord by his spirit gives us the privilege of being united with himself in body, soul, and spirit. The bond of this union, therefore is the spirit of Christ by whom we are conjoined and who is as it were the channel by which all of Christ uh, himself is and has is conveyed to us so calvin's point is very clear christ is physically present in heaven it's a natural condition of humanity that we be finite we're not infinite we can't appear in an infinite amount of spots which is what is required by the uh uh, the roman catholic view for any uh, you can have christ appearing in multiple spots all over the world simultaneously um and just uh, as, a, as a short proof text, I think um, there's plenty of spots you can go to to draw out the fact that Christ is ascended and we won't see him physically until his return. Um, this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus, John 17, 11 through 12. And, uh, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to the Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that they gave us me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Christ is saying, I'm, I'm with them in the world now, um, but I'm, I'm going. I'm not going to be in the world with them anymore. Now, in what sense does he mean this? Because obviously we would say in a sense that Christ is with us. Uh, he's with us spiritually. Uh, He says, uh, wherever there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of him. Not that he's in the midst of us physically, bodily, but uh, spiritually he is with us. So I think the the best way to understand what he's saying there is that I'm not going to be physically present with them anymore in the world. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. Uh, I was reading through John, I think I started in maybe chapter 14 all the way through 17. Um, looking, uh, for this and it's, it's clear, like the spirit is sent because Christ is not going to be with us physically. Um, so that's, that's, that's important there to, uh, to realize. Um, and then just as a, a, uh, hopefully brief, um, look at John six, because I know, um, John six will be brought up and will be chastised for not having dealt with it because, um, other views think that it proves their position that, uh, the, the Lord's Supper becomes truly physically the body and blood of uh, Jesus. Although you'll note that um, the context out of John 6 actually isn't the Lord's Supper. Not that it doesn't have anything relevant to say about it, but it's not directly talking about that. Um, the way I, uh, I I take this is that the uh, the eating and drinking are metaphoric or symbolic for coming in faith. And I'll hopefully I'll demonstrate that. So this is uh, John 6, and I'm starting at verse uh, 26. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. And they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him who he hath sent. So you'll note he's making sure that they understand, like, what God requires you to do is believe. Um, Verse 30, Then they said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we might see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Uh, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that you have seen me and believe not. So here, Jesus is saying, yes, I am the bread of life. The one that comes to me will never hunger. The one that believes in me will never thirst. These are these are I mean, this is this is describing saving faith here, coming and believing Um, that that language is used all over the, the New Testament for how one has saving faith in Christ. And that's what produces not hungering and not not thirsting. Um, so we have that in the background as we're going through this, and then I'll, I'll jump ahead to verse 41 here. Then the Jews, uh, the Jews then murmured at him because he had said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then? He said that I came down from heaven. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, murder, murmur, not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the father, which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is uh, written uh, in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Every man that therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. So you'll note, again, he's talking about coming when they've just asked about like, well, how is it that uh, you can say you're the bread that comes down from heaven? And then he starts talking about coming. So again, showing the association in Jesus' mind. Uh, Verse 46. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he is which of, is of God. He hath, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me have everlasting life. I am the bread of life. So again, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life, immediately followed by I am the bread of life. Or I am that bread of life, bread of life, excuse me. Verse 49, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Um, so this is where you start seeing Roman Catholics picking up that, Oh, well, clearly this, this must be physical. Uh, it's that his, um, the bread has physically become him because he says, and that, and the bread that I will give is my flesh. Right? Well, well, what Christ gives for his life, or for the life of uh, those that believe in him, um, is his flesh. He gives his flesh up on the cross. Um, without that, we can't, uh, it doesn't matter if we were to believe in him.
0: John, you there? Oh, I think we lost Sean.
1: That's the, the flesh that he gives oh, up there. there. Oh, did I was I out for a sec?
0: Yeah, you broke up for a second.
1: What was the last thing I said?
0: Oh, uh, you were talking about Christ's body being given up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, essentially that that's what's going on there. Like the what he gives for the life of the world is his flesh because he he gives it up on the cross. That's not necessarily a reference to the bread becoming literally his flesh there, but by believing in that sacrifice, we do have the bread of life. Um And then uh, verse 52, the Jews therefore strove amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say to you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Uh, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, So this is is probably the the key verse here. But the reason I read all that uh, precedes this is to show that we've already established that eating and drinking is a metaphor for coming and believing. So it's not, um, it's not anything surprising that, that Jesus says this. Um, Like when you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you're, you're, you're coming and believing in that, in that sacrifice and thus being saved. And I'll note, if you were to, you were to read this literally, it says, whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood have everlasting life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And yet Roman Catholics don't believe that because they believe that you, you, can partake of it and then commit a moral sin and, and fall away um, and not mm-hmm. be saved and not be raised on the last day. So they don't actually believe what their, their theology requires them to, or their interpretation of this passage requires them to believe. Um, so, and then I'll, I'll just, I'll just skip to the end real quick. Um, oh, where is it? Um, uh, where does it say that he, uh, what he said is spiritual. Oh, yeah. So um, I'll, uh, starting at verse 60, many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? What if ye sh- shall see the son of man to send up where he was before? It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I spoke unto you are they are spirit and they are life. So he's saying these are spiritual words that you need to interpret spiritually, and they give you life. And that's true, right? If we understand that we partake of the body and blood of Christ by faith, by recognizing his sacrifice on the cross, then we are saved and we were provi- we are provided with the spiritual sustenance that we need. We will, in a real sense, never hunger and never thirst. Um, so that's that's the way that I would read John 6 not that it has no relevance to the lord's supper whatsoever but it is not directly about the the lord's supper um and it's not saying that the the elements of the lord's supper uh become literally the uh the body and blood of christ
0: yeah it's interesting that um yeah it it is interpreted as primarily a eucharistic passage um, and we would say, obviously not. And then we could take the implic, like you said, we it could apply to the Lord's Supper in some sense. But it would actually, if we interpret this in a spiritual sense, that we're spiritually receiving the body and blood of Christ, that would be the same for the Lord's Supper as well, right? And even in First Corinthians ten, you know, it, it in in verse fourteen, starting therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation, communion? Um, or sharing depending on what translation you use participation in the blood of Christ, the blood that, or the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body for, we all partake of one bread. And then Paul goes on to, you know, talk about um, when it, his point is, is that if you're participating in the Lord's supper, it is a spiritual thing that you were doing. It's not just like we talked about on your memorial, those who are participating by faith are actually participating in the body and blood of Jesus Christ uh, in a spiritual sense. And in in the same way, Christians shouldn't be participating in pagan feasts that are being used to offer to idols, because that is a participation with demons. It has a real spiritual significance. There's something spiritual going on there. It's not just a mere act that you're doing that has no real relevance. You're doing something uh, that has spiritual significance. So that element from John 6 as applied to receiving Christ by faith in salvation um, has a real application implicitly for how we understand the Lord's Supper, Um, because if you can't receive him physically initially for salvation, then there's no way you can receive him physically in the table. All of it is done by faith, Um, and we're nourished as Christians ongoing as we're reminded of that of that truth and we are participating spiritually speaking in the body and blood of jesus christ um so we can you know continue to be nourished and and carry on in our christian life um so you know kind of in wrapping things up here what this says is that the lord's supper is something to take seriously it's not something that we should be uh taking lightly as we're doing it um in our churches we should be doing it according to the word and we should be doing it in a way that is uh, not flippant. We should come to the table prepared and with our minds ready to receive the elements um, so that it is not uh, done flippantly. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 11 that some had fallen asleep or gotten sick because they were not using the Lord's Supper in a proper way. And that's not to say that God um, you know, will do that. Or, or not do that now or whatever the case might be. But it, the point is, is that it's a serious thing to take lightly the Lord's Supper. Um, and I think this is why you see, uh, even in our own confession and, and other reformed writings talking about the blasphemous nature or the, just the wicked nature of the Eucharist. And because of how it treats the Lord's Supper, it, it makes light the body, you know, the body and blood of Christ and turns it into um, something that it should not be, it's idolatrous worship. Um, so we have to be you're, careful not to fall into that.
1: You're talking about the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 That it's idolatrous worship to, you know, to treat the body and blood of Christ in the way that the Roman Catholics do, mm-hmm. um, at the very least, cause it's, it's misapplying it. It's saying that Christ is doing something in a way it's worshiping the elements as if they are God. Um, it, it's just it, it's wickedness. It's idolatry. Um, so we have to be careful not to mistreat the elements in our own ways. We can do that. Um, and again, Paul gives examples that the Corinthians were eating and drinking. they were using it as a as their uh, potluck dinner, so to speak. Right. They were eating it to using it to fill themselves and fill their stomachs. They weren't using it in the way that they should have been using it as a uh, as that spiritual memorial and that spiritual nourishment in obedience to christ as part of their corporate worship it was being used for their own carnal desires Um, so we have to be careful about that as we're going into the lord's supper if those of us who participate in it tomorrow you know we should be mindful of those things we go in with our hearts prepared uh, we put aside our sins and we do it in a way that is is pleasing um, to god Uh, anything to add closing remarks sean
1: uh i just I like this quote from Augustine, so I'm, I'm going to quote it. He's actually, he's it's from his uh, uh it's a tractate on John 6. Mm-hmm. And um, he says, uh, and of course, I've lost it now, but um, what he says essentially is, believe and you have eaten already. Um, and that's that's mm. that's true, right? Um, mm-hmm. we we partake of Christ through believing, we do have the Lord's Supper as a, a means of grace. And we should not neglect that, but true faith is what saves.
0: Amen. Amen. All right. Well, with that, thank you for joining us today. And Lord willing, we will be back next week uh, for more theological discussion. Have a great weekend.